you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. It's 1947. Frank Molina, co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, has moved to Paris to work for UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Or to put it another way, he's dodged the Red Scare engulfing the United States, and he's dodged the FBI, who suspect he's a leftist, perhaps the kind of leftist to pass military secrets to the Soviet Union. One of the reasons they suspect Molina? His connection to Sidney Weinbaum. Sidney is the Caltech scientist who, outside of the office, was head of professional Unit 122, a cell of the Pasadena Communist Party. Basically, he's the guy who turned the suicide squad on to the Communist Party in the first place. The Weinbaums, Sidney, his wife Lena, and their daughter, are stuck in Pasadena. Sydney is still working at JPL, and he's the primary suspect in the eyes of the JPL director. Unlike Molina, however, Sydney and his family can't escape to Paris. They're getting desperate. Here's an excerpt from a letter that Lena Weinbaum wrote to Frank Molina. Quote, Since UNESCO is understaffed, can't you find for the Weinbaums an occupation there? I am serious. All of us could probably work. Close quote. Here's another letter. Lena's talking about her husband again. Quote, He's not with anyone else, just at his desk. He is going to pieces. Close quote. Here's Lena again, in another letter to Melina. This time, she calls him out for not doing more. Quote, Frank, why are you so noncommittal? It is not like you. Do right, won't you? I don't give a damn if I am not diplomatic with you. Life's too short. It is just too bad if there are not at least very few people with whom one does not have to be diplomatic, close quote. The point is, skies are darkening. For anyone suspected of communism in the States at that time, especially believers like the Weinbaums, things are getting bleak. Meanwhile, Molina's sitting comfy in Paris, waiting out the storm on a bed of baguettes, or so his former friends in Pasadena probably see it. Because it's not like the FBI has jurisdiction in France. It's not like they'd be so bold as to track him there. I'm M.G. Lord. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, 
celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. To the FBI, it might have looked like Melina saw the Red Scare coming because Melina fled to Paris in April 1947, a few weeks after President Truman signed the loyalty order to investigate potential communists among government employees. But that's not why he left. Melina took a leave of absence from JPL partly because he's freaked out that his research back at JPL and Aerojet will be used to launch nuclear bombs, and partly because he still believes in the utopian dream of science bettering life on Earth. And his job offer at UNESCO seemed like a way to fulfill that dream. In that science, art, humanity's fusion was something that he thought was incredibly important. And it's something that he thought that UNESCO was likely to embody. That's Fraser MacDonald, lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and author of Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. UNESCO is an agency of the United Nations that was founded to promote world peace through things like education, the arts, the sciences. For Molina, it's a winning combination. And you could see that UNESCO was being set up. It was going to be um, headed up by Julian Huxley, a scientist, famous biologist, but with a great um, leaning towards um, the humanities as well. And of course, the brother of Aldous Huxley, whose writing Melina loved. So Melina would go to these meetings um, on the creation of UNESCO and just felt excited. He felt like this is the future. Having a job that didn't in some way lead to World War III was also a perk. It represented to him precisely the internationalist scientific ideal that was the antithesis of everything he had experienced at JPL. So at JPL, you couldn't freely share information. You couldn't, there wasn't some kind of free spirit of inquiry across different researchers at different institutions because everything was nailed down by military secrecy. UNESCO represented the antithesis of that. It was all about the free sharing of scientific information in a bid to improve the ordinary life of, of civilians. So Molina throws himself into his work at UNESCO. He's recently divorced and he starts dating a colleague, Marjorie Duckworth. They soon marry, have two sons, Roger and Alan. The point is, it seems like Molina's eluded McCarthyism. He's escaped. Whereas for Sidney Weinbaum, by this point, the FBI has broken into his home and tapped his phone. 
Soon the FBI sets a trap where the JPL personnel director makes him fill out a security questionnaire to see if Weinbaum will or won't list being a Communist Party member. He doesn't, of course, so the feds bring him in for a chat. Afterward, he'll write to Molina that he was, quote, recovering from the oddest and shocking experience of being grilled for two days in succession and by the FBI. I suspect I will be leaving the lab very shortly, but now I am mostly feeling incensed by the fantastic accusations they have hurled at me. Close quote. Weinbaum loses his security clearance. He loses his position at JPL. He's out of a job, out of science. This is around the same time that Joseph McCarthy is making speeches about the, quote, enemies from within. And then... June 16, 1950, Sidney is arrested for perjury, for lying on that security questionnaire. Two months later, he pleads not guilty, but the jury finds otherwise, and he's sentenced to four years in prison. There was no evidence where Sidney Weinbaum might be passing military secrets or classified intelligence to Molina, who was then in UNESCO in Paris. Absolutely no evidence that this is the case. None. The paradox here is that espionage was happening. In fact, just a year later, the American couple Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were found guilty of passing nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. Ethel's brother was part of the Manhattan Project, the American effort to create the atomic bomb, and he shared nuclear data with the Rosenbergs. The Rosenbergs then passed it up the chain, first to a Swiss courier, then to the Soviet Union's vice council in New York City. But after one member of their espionage ring was discovered, the others fell like dominoes. The Rosenbergs were executed by electric chair. The FBI did have reasons to be concerned, but not because of Weinbaum. The real suspicious activity was happening around another former employee of JPL. What we know is that the Communist Party leadership were absolutely determined to break into U.S. military and scientific institutions. And that partly happened through the auspices of von Karman. Von Karman, by that point, had moved from JPL to Columbia University, where he has a Ph.D. student named Bill Pearl. Pearl is a member of the Rosenberg spy ring. He's funneling classified information straight from von Karman's filing cabinets to the Communist Party. Now, at the time, von Karman, as a sort of side hustle, is still pretty high up at the Pentagon. So we're talking thousands of pages of technical documents of significant military consequence. Did von Karman know about this? We don't know. But, of course, the FBI found out that von Karman himself, who is by this stage such a central figure in the Pentagon, von Karman himself had been a member of the German Communist Party and the Hungarian Communist Party, and had probably not been completely clear about that when he first immigrated to the United States. Was von Karman involved in espionage? It's possible, probably unlikely. Did he hire people who were involved in the Communist Party, both in Los Angeles and in New York? Absolutely he did. I mean, it's an extraordinary coincidence that so many of his 
closest PhD students should have been members of the Communist Party, not just Frank Molina, but um, Tien, and of course in, in New York, fatefully Bill Pearl, a member of the Rosenberg Ring. The von Karman story breaks in 1950, the same year Weinbaum is arrested for perjury. A year later, Bill Pearl is convicted of two counts of perjury. And all of this, the traps, the white lies, the mistruths, is how the FBI comes from Molina. As if Weinbaum were just the prelude. Here's Frazier again. Eventually, the same tactics that get his colleagues in the United States reach him in UNESCO, which is the, you know, the trap of the personnel security questionnaire, forces his resignation from UNESCO. Technically, he resigns, but of course, he's just effectively fired because they know that there's no way he would fill out the form which has the bear trap. The bear trap being this question that says, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Molina gets a letter summoning him to the American consulate for an interview, November 1st, 1950. Little does he know, FBI agents have been following him around for years, eight in total, including in Paris. They even had informants at UNESCO. The interview transcript from that day remains heavily redacted. What we know is that Molina took the fifth and refused to name names. He resigns from his post at UNESCO. Soon, his application for passport renewal gets refused. Basically, he's now stuck in France. He writes in a letter to his father in Texas, quote, If we return to the U.S. now, I do not see what good I could do. I have no intention of starting rocket research again, especially for war purposes. I would end up in the army or in jail. And I don't see too much purpose in those two possibilities, close quote. Perhaps most shocking, however, is the extreme good fortune that awaits the Molina family right around the corner. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. So finally, in 1953, I, I finally said, well, I'm going to have to quit. This is Frank Molina himself. And all of a sudden, I was financially independent. So I said to my wife, I said, well, I'm going to take up one of my suppressed desires and I'm going to become a full-time artist. And so in 53, I cut loose from everything and became an artist. 
Molina's referring to the fact that just as he's being pushed out of UNESCO and haunted by the FBI, he has a fantastic stroke of luck. Here's Fraser again. The ridiculous thing here is that, of course, that when Molina is forced to resign, it coincides with this moment where he becomes inadvertently rich, like preposterously rich. That's a ridiculous turn of events, like the accidental millionaire communist. Molina, like several other Suicide Squad members, had shares in Aerojet, the corporation that the Suicide Squad had created to develop rocket engines for the military during the war. And in 1945, Aerojet was acquired by the General Tire and Rubber Corporation. Parsons, Foreman, and Von Karman ended up selling their shares, but Molina held on to his, and now they've shot up in value. Rocketed, you might say. Molina pockets a fat dividend now and sells his shares as needed. And since the share value is growing exponentially, he only needs to sell a few of them to get by, leaving the rest to keep appreciating. As Molina put it in a letter to Von Karman, quote, Monte Carlo was never like this, close quote. And so, Frank Molina, a millionaire communist, yet ever the Renaissance man, makes a major pivot and becomes that most Parisian of things, an artist. He becomes an artist, pursues his other passion, ultimately develops this very important science art journal called Leonardo, involves himself in various types of space advocacy and institutions like International Astronautics Federation and so on. In other words, he lives a kind of life of a kind of gentleman, artist, and um, a kind of geopolitical thinker. That Aerojet money protects Molina from the worst of the Red Scare. He no longer has to rely on his government job to make ends meet, which means he also doesn't have to fill out another security questionnaire. In retrospect, you know, and I've wasted most of his money, you know, he was so lucky that he became a political refugee and a criminal at the same time that Aerojet just took off. And so, you know, he bought a house in Paris for a studio. That's Molina's son, Roger. These days, Roger Molina is a professor of physics at the University of Texas at Dallas. Roger is friendly, quick-witted, and charming, with a touch of academic gravitas to his voice, just like his father. But unlike Frank's erudite, all-American, mid-century accent, Roger speaks with a slight English accent, a trait he attributes to the fact that he learned English from his mother, since Frank was rarely around. During the Vietnam War, I was an undergraduate student, and I demonstrated on the streets of MIT. But I came home that Christmas after occupying the student center with my friends, and I said to my dad, you're still making money from Aerojet? I mean, you should sell that stock and buy stock in a non-military company. And he said, Roger, there's no such thing as dirty money. There's only dirty things you do with money and clean things you do with money. So when he was setting up the International Academy of Astronautics, he was a volunteer, he didn't get paid. When he set up the Leonardo publications, he was a volunteer, he didn't get paid. And so he did clean things with his money, even though the money was dirty. 
Molina started out making oil paintings. As he improved, he wanted to see how far paintings could go and still be paintings, I guess. For example, he'd incorporate wires or wire mesh on the surface of his art to create depth. Then one Christmas, he had an epiphany. I asked Roger to tell me the story. He was making artworks in our living room one Christmas, and he said, oh, I want to put a light bulb into the painting to increase the contrast. So he put the light bulb in the painting, and as we were having dinner, it started burning. He said, now I know why artists don't put light bulbs in paintings. But then a few years later at Christmas, again, he was looking at the Christmas tree from dinner, and it wasn't burning. He said, look, the Christmas tree lights are not making the tree burn. He got up took the Christmas tree lights off the Christmas tree and put them in his painting. The rest is history. Now we have new media, digital media, VR, AR. <laughs> and so I think he was you know, a pioneer in saying that we need to make art, design culture for the world we're in, not for the world of the past. Here's Frank in his own words. I was very interested in the relation, possible relationships between art, science, and technology. And uh, I used to complain that when I went to the museums that I kept seeing paintings of dead fish and nudes and flowers and so forth, and no one seemed to be interested in all these other things that are happening in science and technology, the products and the conceptions and all these things. So I had that bee in my bonnet. And so I was trying to find a way to introduce this into the visual arts. It's worth pointing out that Molina's work may have been a little before its time. Or how shall I say this? Maybe just a little screwy? The Parisian art galleries certainly thought so. When my father first took his kinetic art to a gallery in Paris to try and rent the gallery to exhibit, the gallery owner said, you must be kidding. If you have to plug it in, it cannot be art. Go to the movie museum. <laughs> According to Roger, Molina's kinetic paintings also drew suspicion from the FBI. I think in 1955, when he did an art show in Paris of his kinetic art, in the FBI files, the investigator went to the cocktail party and had free wine at my father's expense and couldn't believe that these paintings on the wall, you had to plug them in. What kind of artwork do you have to plug in? It must be a way of sending secrets to the Russians. So Molina makes a new life for himself as an artist, but his political past never really dies. By the 21st century, of course, the art world caught up to Molina. I think he would have loved digital media, virtual reality. I picture him making Instagrammable environments like immersive Van Gogh or NFTs of the Halloween rocket test. His politics, though, would have led to a whiplash. Weirdly, exactly eight years after his death on November 9, 1981, the Berlin Wall fell, and all the old players realigned themselves. In the 20th century, right-wing Republicans demonized the Russians. Now, the two work hand-in-hand hand to meddle in U.S. elections. At the top of the episode, I read a few letters from Sidney Weinbaum's wife, Lena. She pleaded with Frank Molina to save them from the FBI, but ultimately he didn't. 
Sidney Weinbaum wound up imprisoned far away from his family. Lena suffered an emotional breakdown. Here's Fraser McDonald again. So there are emotional consequences that the Weinbaums pay, and pay in part to protect Melina, even though Melina may not fully know that. They could easily have ratted him out. They could easily have named names, said much more. Sidney Weinbaum absolutely bore the cost of protecting other people. But that cost was really significant. When I first read Lena Weinbaum's letters, I was disappointed that Frank didn't do more to help, especially since Sidney protected him through the entire investigation. But Fraser argues that Melina wasn't in any position to help. After all, Melina was a political refugee in Paris who was avoiding his own run-in with the FBI. It's not like there's no price to pay. Melina is not in any position to help Weinbaum. His passport's taken away from him. He can't move. By the time of Sydney's trial, there's nothing Melina can say from Paris that's going to make things better. Like, he can't, he can't intervene in ways that, that can assist. He potentially could have helped Sydney Weinbaum financially, but the chances of that being discovered would have been extremely high. So Frank Molina survives the Red Scare pretty well, as compared to the Weinbaums in particular, but also compared to a fellow squad member who was likewise hounded by the FBI and the U.S. government, but with far more drastic consequences. In the next episode, you'll hear the extraordinary story of Chen Shushen, or as I like to call it, how a couple of knuckleheads in the FBI and the United States government basically created the modern Chinese space program. That's next on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of LA Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.